0: teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Colossians 4, beginning in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose— that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demos. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, today we conclude our series in... The letter of Colossians can almost guarantee that it's the greatest sermon series in the book of Colossians you have ever heard at this church. Uh, What ought to take 11 minutes to read uh, took us 11 weeks to discuss, and I'm sure that we just scratched the surface. And really one of the main points I think that Paul is trying to stress throughout this letter is how we are to progress in our faith, how we grow, um, how we mature, how we advance in our spiritual lives. And with all sorts of rival claims that existed in the first century and with all the rival claims that exist today in the 21st century, Colossians reminds us that we are to continue steadfastly in Jesus. In fact, we're told in chapter 2, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So continue in him. We don't move beyond Jesus. We just grow deeper in Christ. Jesus is not a stepping stone into a world and a life of spiritual growth. Jesus is that world. Jesus is that growth. Jesus is everything. But as we see in this final portion, this is not a journey that we are to make alone. It's one that we need to make together. We grow, we mature together. In what uh, one pastor named John Tyson described as a web of stubbornly loyal relationships. And this is a very timely reminder for us because I can't tell you how many countless stories I've heard recently of people walking away from the faith in recent years we had a comfort zone as evangelicals over the last two decades as we watched the trends impacting what is known as the mainline protestant church the more historic denominations and we saw that trend happening and we thought that we were comfy and cushy over here in the evangelical church it has hit close to home here countless stories of people overcome by doubts People being caught up in all sorts of different belief systems. People going down paths of compromising morals. And almost every story that I've heard in recent years begins the same way. I drifted from the church. I drifted from the church. There's an old African proverb that I'm confident that you've probably... Confident you've probably... I'm confident that you've heard. And it goes like this. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far go together. And what we see in this final portion of Colossians is that our longevity in the faith depends on what we share together in Jesus Christ, our bond together. Prime TV uh, is streaming this like futuristic sci-fi show, which is not normally my jam, but it has got me intrigued. And there's this sort of like subplot, at least it's a subplot right now, about a man who once was a soldier, and in his cohort in the Marines, they, whoever they are, embedded this team of men with this haptic technology that syncs up their bodies and their minds together. And even after they've become civilians again, they're no longer in the military. This device that is embedded in their bodies causes them to share emotions, bodily pain, shared experiences, physical impulses, fill in the blank. They are forever connected, for better or for worse, through the highs and through the lows, or maybe as the Bible would describe, through celebration and through weeping. And it creates this unbreakable bond between them where they're willing to sacrifice life and limb for their brothers, and they become a force to be reckoned with. And as I'm watching this, like, obviously fictional team, it made me think about what we have available to us right now, today, within the body of Christ, within Christian community. Not through embedded technology, but through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. A shared, deep bond that we can experience because of our adoption into the family of God. Because, as the scriptures tell us, we have been made one in Jesus Christ. And while that is true, and while that is available to every single believer, I can't say that it's an experience that we all have. Many of us maybe here today aren't experiencing that deep bond where I'm like, I trust that person with my life. We're in it through thick and thin. And so, to share in that bond, to experience both the blessings and also the responsibilities to be fully present and available to each other in this sort of way, we need a God sized vision for the church. We need God's perspective for the church. And so, if you're taking notes, I believe that this means at least three things today. And the first is this there are no small people. No small people, say that out loud with me. No small people. This phrase comes from a Francis Schaeffer book about this subject and in it he begins like this. He says, as as a Christian considers the possibility of being the Christian glorified or the fully realized Christian, often his reaction is, it's wonderful to be a Christian, but I'm such a small person, so limited in talents or energy or psychological strength or knowledge that what I do is not really important. But the Bible, however, has a quite, a, quite a different emphasis. That with God, there are no little people. In God's economy, in God's kingdom, there are no small people. One of the things that I love about Paul's letters to the churches, especially his conclusions, is how he addresses people in these different churches by name. And often giving these like really personalized little bits of information, especially for a church like uh, in Colossae that he's never even visited. He's never even been there in person. And yet he's calling them by name. And he does this in a time and in a culture where people were otherwise extremely devalued. Many individuals in this time were not recognized as full persons women, children, and slaves. And this is a place where people were treated like objects instead of people. In fact, one of the names that we see here, Onesimus, simply means useful. So this was a presumably a child born into slavery, born, born to a slave woman. And when he is born, whoever was in charge of naming these slave children said, he'll be useful. Not even worthy of a name. Fit him in with Tertius third; Quartus IV, He's just one of the slaves. And yet Paul greets these people by name. And this list is so striking because this list is full of servants, fugitives, prisoners, traitors, Jews and Gentiles, upstanding leaders, church planters, this sort of like overachiever, doctor, historian named Luke, all by name and with zero regard for social hierarchy. Zero regard for the norms of society that would place the most honorable people first. As Andy Crouch pointed out, if there's ever going to be a restoration in culture, whether it's in the first century or today in the 21st century, it is always going to involve the recognition of persons. You read through the Gospels, what what does Jesus do when he approaches this demoniac outcast when he intended to heal him and then restore him back into community. The first thing we see is this, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? What's your name? So what we see here in Colossians 4 isn't just Paul being polite. This isn't about Paul having manners and ending it in sort of like this like semi-sincere way. What Paul is doing here is he's setting a gospel culture in the church, and what he's reminding them is this is a place where people go from being useful to being loved. This is a place where we go from having fragile, faulty, false identities to receiving a lasting true identity in Jesus Christ. This is a place that honors God's promise that for the one who trusts in Christ for salvation, your name is forever written in the Lamb's book of life recognized in heaven. This, by the way, is one of the reasons that we believe so strongly in church membership and belonging to the local church, that those who are known in heaven, I don't know, ought to be known here, ought to be recognized among us. But along with upholding the value of persons in the church, Paul is also doing something very practical here. This is a letter of recommendation for certain individuals listed here. Now, one of the things that I love to do as a pastor, and you can take me up on this, is write letters of recommendation. I was just scrolling back through my computer and over the last 13 years or so, I've written countless letters of recommendation for people trying to apply for jobs, internships, uh, seminaries, colleges, church positions, private school for their kids, you name it, there's always a need for a letter of recommendation. And it's always a great opportunity, most of the time, uh, to pause and to reflect and to be grateful and to write down and to jot down encouraging things about the people that I know and that I'm in community with. Now, obviously, the goal is to help the person land the job. Like, that's the goal. They're so responsible. (laughs) And they show up on time. They're a team player. But one one of the rewards for me is knowing that this person, before they send in that letter of recommendation, they're gonna read it themselves. And they're going to approve or disapprove of sending that that letter in. And it's always rewarding to know that this is gonna be an opportunity to encourage that person and to be able to say with confidence, I meant almost every word of this. (laughs) Almost, The, the being on time and responsible thing. But I love you so much. Here in verse seven, Tychicus, the one delivering the letter receives the highest honors a Christian can receive. I mean, if if Paul is gonna say something about you, these three statements are pretty remarkable. First, he's a beloved brother. I love him and he is like a brother to me. And he's a faithful minister. God is at work in his life and I see God bringing about the fruit fruit, uh, fruit of faithfulness in his life. And he's a fellow servant, meaning he is an equal in service to me. He is my companion. He's not just like a sidekick. He is my team. He is my brother. And then there's Onesimus, who was previously a fugitive servant, that we read about in the book of Philemon. So if you've got one of those ESV notebooks that we handed out at the beginning of this series, keep that, bring it back January 1st because we're gonna cover the book of Philemon. And you can read about Onesimus there, but suffice it to say, Onesimus at some point broke his contract, bounced, and left a big mess in Colossae. And now Paul is writing back to Colossae, he's gonna send Onesimus back And he's essentially saying, God has changed him. I can vouch for him now. He is faithful. He's beloved. He's a brother. And he reminds the church of something so important, especially in regards to a slave servant. He's one of you. He's one of you. And there's Aristarchus, a fellow prisoner that you've never met, and people will struggle to pronounce his name for thousands of years. We don't know anything about him, but he says, what's up? (laughs) Tell him I say hi. And then there's Mark. The deserter, we read about him in the book of Acts. Mark is the very reason that Paul and Barnabas split. How about that reputation? I'm the reason that the two most important apostles split ways. (laughs) And yet, what does he say? Receive him. He deserves a warm, gracious welcome. Keep your eye out for him. And then there's Jesus, a.k.a. Justice, because that would get really confusing. So just call him Justice from now on. Uh, One of Paul's Jewish companions who is seeking the kingdom of God and is a comfort to God's people. And then there's Epaphras, who is the Colossians' church planter who prays day and night and intercedes for this church. And then there's Luke, my beloved, loyal companion, who has traveled with me on so many of my missionary journeys. And then there's Demas. We can read about Demas in the letter to Timothy. He's a story of restoration. And then Nympha, we don't know a lot about her, but she's a hospitable woman who has opened her home so that the church can gather regularly in her home. And there's Archippus, we don't know a lot about him, but we do know that there's a unique calling on his life that he needs to be reminded to step back into. As I'm reading through this list, in a lot of ways, these are just like strange ancient names with stories I don't know. But you know how this stirs me as I'm reading this list? What it stirs within me is this, that I don't want to wait until someone's dead to eulogize them. I don't want to wait until it's too late. I believe that God has called us, Reality Church, to be a place where we tell people how loved and we tell people how cherished and appreciated they are, where we don't take that for granted. Well, I just assume they know I like them. Tell them. Speak truth over them. We have been marked and identified by so many faulty identities and so many of our failures. Speak good into their lives. Remind them now what is eternally true of them in Jesus Christ. Speak these words of courage. Speak these words of power. Speak these words of life into one another. What if we were the kind of place where we got sappy and sentimental and even teared up as we were speaking to each other, as if we were speaking at a funeral? Don't wait to give honor to God's people. Why? Because there are no small people. Secondly, a God-sized vision for the church involves knowing that there are no small places. You guys still with me? No small places. We may think that because this church in Colossae is receiving a letter from the Apostle Paul, there's limited real real estate in the, uh, the New Testament, not every city got a letter, but Colossians does, We may be tempted to think that this was a big deal place. This is a big deal church. They must be influential. So I remember being at a church leaders conference about a decade ago where the speaker was talking all about the importance of big cities. About 10 years ago, this was like the big talk in the evangelical world. Big cities, big cities, big cities. And he went on and on about how Paul, in all of his missionary journeys, would go to these big cities, he called them the upstream locations that would then influence the neighboring areas that Paul focused on big cities. And today, big cities are at the heart of what God is doing in this world. And I remember thinking like, oh, that makes sense. Like LA and New York and London and these sort of places. It makes sense. But then I thought, like, what does that mean for cities like Stockton? What does that mean for literal backwater places like where we live? The places of obscurity, the the places that are struggling, the places that are forgotten. Does God work there? And specifically, can God do a world-impacting work in obscure locations? The history of the city of Colossae is really important. It did have a heyday at one point between the 4th and 6th century BC during the Persian rule. It was a uh, major trade route, a military, military route, and a commercial route that made this city very influential and affluential. There were a lot of wealthy people here. It was a prominent city in the area. But at some point, these neighboring cities were built, Laodicea and Heropolis. You could call them suburbs and like happens, the people moved out of Colossae and into the suburbs, into Laodicea, into Hierapolis, And it was abandoned by the more affluential citizens of Colossa, Colossae. So it was a struggling city. And then in the first century, there were two major earthquakes that almost entirely decimated the city, and they never quite recovered. So by the time this letter is reaching them, in somewhere around 62 AD, a few hundred years after their heyday, as one commentator describes it, Colosse had become an insignificant third-rate country town. It was not magnificent. It was a forgotten city. It was not influential. The eyes of the world were not on them. Like many places in California today, more people were leaving the city than moving into the, into the city. It was not a desirable place to live. And yet, from the very beginning of this letter, Paul is speaking some phenomenal truth into their lives. And he's reminding them that they were known as faithful saints and brothers in Christ at Colossae. They were not an overlooked city, not overlooked in the kingdom of God. And that the broader church loved them and the broader church was praying for them and the broader church was invested in their flourishing. In fact, he reminds them That though they may be off the map and off of everyone's radar, they were not off of God's radar. And how do we know that? How do we know that this city was significant to God? How do we know that this city was important in the kingdom of God? And the answer is very simple. It's because the gospel came to them. In chapter one, we read the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world as it's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So just like many, I'm looking around in this room right now, just like many of us represented in this church reality today, God had put it on their hearts, on the hearts of believers to go to this place, to preach the gospel there, to establish a church and to minister into obscurity. To minister in the hard place. To minister in the overlooked place. And the life of Jesus took root in their hearts and began to powerfully transform them. Bearing such incredible fruit of love and joy in their community that the reputation, the word of their transformation made its way all the way back to Paul in Rome, in prison, 1,300 miles away. The rumors of this church were spreading across the world. And as I read that, what it reminds me of in our moment today is this, never underestimate the great work that God can do in small places, in small places. If you read through the scriptures and you read through historic Christian revivals, what you'll find is that God often does his most amazing work in obscure, overlooked places. This Christmas, we're going to be reminded of that, that Jesus' birth took place in a place so far off the radar. Almost everyone, except a few social outcasts and a few traveling foreigners, noticed it. In a no-name village on the edges of the empire where no one would expect it in Bethlehem. We know the name Bethlehem because it's written into the Christmas story. No one knew Bethlehem. As you read on you'd read about Jesus' ministry, what we read is that a majority of his life and a majority of his ministry took took place in small rural villages outside of the city. There's an account in John chapter 1 that goes like this. Philip found Nathanael and he said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Jesus has come. He's here among us. Nathaniel, not even thinking about the the hope of the Messiah or all that that means for human history, responds and says to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth? Colossae? Stockton? There are no small places, not when the kingdom of God is drawn near. And there are no small places, not where Christ is preached and lives are transformed. There are no small places on God's map. And this is the conviction that's led us to finalize our partnership with an organization called the Creek Collective. We've talked a lot about this over this last year. The Creek Collective is a network of churches that partner together to establish gospel-driven churches in distressed and neglected black and brown communities in places like the Bronx, where Fordham Community Church is ministering, in places like Waukegan, Illinois, you didn't even know that was a place, I bet, where New Life Fellowship is ministering, in places like Pine Bluff, Arkansas, where Christ Redeemer Church serves, and so on and so forth. In verse 13, Paul commends Epaphras for working hard and specifically for working hard in cities like Colossae, Laodicea, and Heropolis. And the church likewise is commended for partnering with these places, partnering in these obscure towns. And so my prayer for us is that God would grow our unity and God would grow us as a church in maturity as we too work hard together to minister in overlooked places. Overlooked places, neglected places like the very city that we live in, in Stockton. There are no small places. And then finally, the last conviction that we need to have a God-sized vision for the church is that there are no small purposes. No small purposes. After he commends Tychicus to the church, he says this, look with me again in verse 8. I have sent him to you for this very reason. That you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. That line jumps out at me for this very purpose. For this very purpose. Now I have to imagine the scene as Paul calls Tychicus to him. He says essentially like, hey, I want to commission you to align your life with God's purpose for you to step into the call of being a faithful minister in a way that's going to change the landscape of Christianity forever. Are you ready? And Tychicus is like, yes, I'm ready. He's like, okay, I need you to deliver this letter. And he's like, that's it? That's the purpose? That's going to change... (laughs) To quote you, Paul, the the landscape of Christianity, like this is the thing, yeah, that's the thing. And it's gonna be in Colossae, and it's 1,300 miles away, and that's pretty far, so you might wanna get started now. And I have to imagine, I just put myself in his shoes. 1,300 miles is a long way by foot, by the way. I have to imagine every single step along the way, he's asking himself, what I at least would ask myself, what am I doing with my life? This is what it's all come to. All the prayer, all the preparation, all the dreams of the amazing things that I'm gonna do in God's kingdom. And here I am walking 1,300 miles with a letter in my hand. I am a postman for the kingdom. My purpose is delivering a letter. All my parents are gonna love when they hear about all that money they spent on college and all the investment in my life and practice and, you know, all that. I'll tell you what he's doing with his life. And it's what he couldn't have seen in this moment. And it's what you can't see in this moment either, but we can see in hindsight. He is carrying out what looked like an insignificant task that would result in a very significant outcome. How do we know? Because we have Colossians today. The letter made it. And countless believers across the globe have this as well. We can be confident that Jesus is the very image of God. We can be confident that Jesus is before all things and holds all things together. We can be confident that God is working his energy within us to mature us. We can be confident that progress in faith means remaining rooted in Jesus, that we don't have to add anything to Jesus at all. We can have the hope that we are alive in Jesus, that through his crucifixion, the record of sin debt that was held against us has now been nailed to the cross that our enemy has been disarmed, the truth that we've been raised with Christ and are now hidden with him in heaven. We can have a vision of these transformed lives for anyone who repents, who puts off the old and puts on the new us in Jesus Christ. We can have hope of experiencing harmonious homes that break those generational curses. We can have hope that we can live in our jobs worshipfully and joyfully. We can have hope that we can experience life-changing relationships. Why? Because there is no such thing as a small purpose. For the one who has surrendered their life to the will of God, there is no small purpose, even if you can't see it right now. In fact, chances are you won't even see it in your lifetime. We've got five year goals, we've got 10 year goals. Let's start setting generational goals. What does God want to do through my life once I'm already dead and forgotten? Maybe this is the kind of encouragement that Archippus needed when Paul urges him and says, see to it, verse 17, that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. You can't see the outcome of what you're doing right now. I know that it seems like a dread. I know that you want to run from it. I know that it's very easy to judge the significance based on what you are seeing right now, but I'm telling you right now, it's too early to judge it. It's too early to call it. Hold the line. Stand fast. Stick with it. Don't give up. Keep going. God is doing a work through you. You will never see it, but God is bringing fruit. There's a story in 2 Samuel 23. It's a list of David's mighty men. And there's this obscure little portion of it. It's an overlooked story, and it says that the Philistines invaded this little lentil field in Israel's territory and all of David's mighty men flee for their life, except for one man named Shammah. And he's like, you know what? This is my, my lentil field. And in verse 12, we're told, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot, and he defended it, and he struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And that's the end of the story. One verse. But what we see here is that this was an insignificant Unimportant little lentil field. It was so insignificant that the mighty men were like, it's not even worth defending. And yet he defends it. And God brings a victory, and it's not just a victory, God calls it a great victory. And what this leads me to believe is that the battle is waged and the battle is won in the small moments of life. We're always waiting for those big moments of impact. Where is Jesus bringing victory? In the overlooked moments, Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 16, One who is faithful in very small is also faithful in much. Something we need to recognize from this final portion of Colossians is you know, we read all about Paul and it's the letter from Paul, but his teaching ministry in Colossae depended on Tychicus. There is no Colossians without Tychicus. And we read about the fruitfulness of Paul's ministry, but there was no fruitfulness and maturing in the church without Epaphras praying and interceding. And we read about all of Paul's ministry in the church, but there is no ministry in the church without Nympha saying, all up in my home. And we read about Paul's preaching ministry, but there is no preaching ministry of Paul without people willing to read and share this letter. And we read Colossians and we say, okay, this is an a." an epistle from Paul, but there is no writing down of Colossians without the scribe that penned it. It sounds really spiritual to say, I only need God. I hear this all the time. I only need God. I don't think we realize how prideful and arrogant that is and how foolish it is because our need for God is fulfilled through our dependence on people. The community of believers is how God answers our prayers and meets our needs. We need God. Yes, that's why we need his people. We need the ministry of Jesus Christ. Yes, that's why we need his body. And if we need the ministry of God's people, then other people are depending on my ministry as well. We grow together. I want to conclude with this final statement here in verse 18, and then I'll finish. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. And let's say these words out loud together. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. The early church had this practice of placing each other or committing each other to the grace of God. It was not just an empty statement. It meant, may the grace of God cover you or may you be committed into the grace of God. It's the way that he opens the letter And it's the way that he concludes the letter. And what this shows us is that in the life of the church, grace gets the first word and grace gets the last word. And it's a really important way to conclude Colossians, especially this portion of Colossians with this list of people because this is a list of people that had failed each other. This is a list of more more failures than not, in fact. There were betrayers here. There were deserters here, there were those who had wounded each other, there were those who had turned their backs on each other. Like our church and any church, these were people that had let each other down. But despite the discomforts and despite the hurts that came from being a part of this community, Paul reminds them the grace of God gets the final word. And what that means for us, reality, is very important. Failure isn't final. And hurt feelings is not final. And disappointment is not final. And mishandling a situation is not final. And offense is not final. And not being recognized for the thing that you thought you should be recognized for is not final. And feeling forgotten or disregarded because your opinions or your perspective weren't made ultimate is not final. The healing, transforming, unifying grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is final. And with that, I say over us what Paul speaks over us, grace be with you all, amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done.